back, everybody. Time for another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had questions about the church and your relationship to it, maybe you become a bit jaded along the way and you've changed your attitudes. Well, you've come to the right place because we're going to look at all of that. Our host, well, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, and planted three churches along the way. He also taught at a prestigious university, was teaching pastor at a mega church, and was an executive coach even. But now, now he's just a self-proclaimed aging curmudgeon who never, never ceases to ask the one question on all our minds. Why? Why not? Let's bring him in. Pittsburgh's own host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. Hey, Paul. The numbers aren't good. They really aren't. I'm talking about church attendance, church membership, religious affiliation, all down. Gallup tells us that in the past 20 years, church membership has gone down a percent a year. 20 years ago, 70% of Americans were church members. Now, it's less than 50. And I probably don't need to tell you that the younger a person is, the less likely they will have any religious affiliation. If we dig a little bit deeper into this, we discover that the trends are no longer breaking news. Mainline denominations are leading in this decline. We also discover that the trend is not worldwide. I recently read in the UK's Guardian, religion is on the wane in Western Europe and North America, and it's growing everywhere else. Interesting. To help us navigate these swirling waters, we have a guest today uniquely qualified to speak on the subject. He's a mainline Presbyterian pastor who's Uh, has never bought into the status quo, although he is so buttoned down, he makes L.L. Bean apologize for their trendiness. Dr. Doug Rayberg started out as an economist with an MPA degree from George Washington, even worked for the EPA before turning religious and getting his master's, this time to Princeton for his master divinity degree, and then got his doctorate in divinity, also known as a D-min Maybe sometimes that sounds like demon, which is kind of ironic. Maybe he can help us sort out some of this morass and tell us what it means. Dr. Doug Rayberg, welcome to Church. Hey, John, it's good to be here with you. Hey, Doug, um, tell us a little bit about you and the story. How did you go from being an economist to being so divinity? (laughs) (laughs) I'm anything but divinity. We have a good friend, you know, who says some people call me reverend, but um, God knows better, and so do I. And that would certainly be my uh, moniker. You know, I grew up in a Christian home, but I um, uh, and I came to uh, sort of begin to understand who Jesus was early in my life. Um, I, I was uh, running track and doing a bunch of things, and uh, my parents ended up moving to Virginia area, Virginia Beach area got involved with some kids that really began to challenge me because they had more than a religion. They had a really a way of life. They 
loved Jesus. They talked about him a lot, but they weren't ugly and they weren't uh, boring and they were athletic and they were uh, good folks. And so uh, I had a choice to make and made a decision to go to school in Boston. And uh, from there, it was, um, I, I, I really felt sort of called to ministry, but I didn't want to just be a Bible beater. I didn't want to just have a limited view of the world. So that's why I went to George Washington, worked on Capitol Hill for a time, came down and met you in Miami about 40 years ago, worked for that uh, Dade County there for a while as an economist, came back to EPA. And then it was uh, clear it was time to go on to uh, prepare for ministry. That's why I went to Princeton. So it was a, it really wasn't a circuitous route. It was sort of direct, but I did want to make sure that I had some experience as a professional in another area. All right, Doug, you made that sound too clean. There, there was a time in your life that no, but none of your friends would have guessed you were ministry bound. I mean, you had a little bit of a rebel in you and you were, you were kind of jaded a bit by the church, even though you had some good experiences, you weren't real sure that was the direction you were going, right? I was buying into the view that um, it was all based on how good I was. And that seemed to be what I was hearing from a lot of people. And that really is religion, this notion that I have to make myself acceptable. And so uh, my time in Miami in particular was pretty eye-opening because I really began to understand more about who God was in grace, and realized that, um, you know, God made everything. And so to make people look the same, talk the same, have the same kind of perspective is not at all consistent with who God is. And uh, it's not a cookie cutter type thing. And I've held on to that. And I know we're going to get into this, but even my sense of call to ministry was not to go to the um, some going place where everybody looked the same and all this, but rather I was attracted to sort of dead and dying folk, a place where People really hadn't heard the real gospel and inter- interacted with it. Yeah. Well, let me let me back your way up because I do want to get there. And and I introduced you as you know a mainline denominational guy, and and you are. I mean, you're really a Presbyterian pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA. But before we even get there, you know, some of our listeners, um, they're just like, okay, denomination, um, Presbyterian wait, Christianity, Catholic, but wait, what, what about Muslims? And, and what about world? Can you give us the big hooks? Because it seems today everybody wants to say, oh, all spirituality is just the same. Just give us some meaning to these, give us some categories to put um, spiritual thinking into. Will you start with kind of the world religions thing? Well, let, let me start maybe in a little bit different place. Um, I think everybody is exactly the same in, in two respects. Um, we all have the same basic psychological needs to love and be loved and have a sense of worth. And every person um, realizes, I believe, that there's, thing, there's some things bigger than themselves. And sometimes it takes people a long time to get there, to get to the place of brokenness and need where they recognize the the extent of their abilities and resources. And at that point, sometimes there's a decision that's made. Either it's to um, end it all or maybe try another passing fancy. Uh, but if you get re- really down to it, and this is where recovery is so important, you recognize we're all, all the same and we have these needs and 
there is one alone who can meet them, and that's God. And so throughout history of human beings, there's always been this sense of there's someone, there's something bigger than me. And uh, when you get real down into the dumps and into the gutter, and you get to the end of your experience, you begin to ask the question, well, who is this? Is it, is it a person? Is it someone that I can interface with? Someone who knows me? And if so, what's this person like? And so when you look at uh, church history, it's filled with examples of people asking that question and then collecting others around them that seem to answer it. Uh, and so you see a Catholic-Protestant divide, then you see all kinds of divisions within Protestantism. You see the same divides in Catholicism. You see the same divides in Christianity and uh, and uh, Hinduism or Buddhism, Muslim uh, faith, and so forth. And so that's what that I think begins to describe why there's so many differences and distinctions. But the questions are all the same. Okay, so the questions are the same, but when we use the category religions in in that term, um, we're really talking about major categories of of differences when you start talking about Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Christians, right? That's what we would say. Those are the major religions, right? Because, right? Because that word's used so often today by people to just say church or anything spiritual, just kind of a religious category. So here, at least, we're saying, okay, there are all, or I want to know from your perspective, so as people, they're all the same. So do all the different religions, are they all just different angles on the same God? You know, one of the things that uh, Pascal said, the great mathematician, 14th century mathematician, was, you know, God created man in his image, and then man's been trying to return the favor. I mean, I think <laughs> we all have a tendency to make God in our own image. And so um, I think the basic question is, uh, and this is where I referred to, you know, use the word religion, you use it as well. Um, it, it, the one big divide is, if there is a God... How do I have a relationship with this God? Is it my doings or is it God's doings? And it's every religious system is predicated on the notion that there are things I must do. There are oughts and shoulds. And if I'm doing the oughts and shoulds uh, that are consistent with this doctrine, this, this uh, belief that a group of people share, then I'm okay. Uh, however, there's an alternative, and that is the view that God's done all that needs to be done. And uh, if that's the case, then it's his doings, his acceptance that is more significant and more important to me. Okay, let, let me take the jump then. So if we go from religions and get into Christianity, and you would argue a few of those religions might be called would be uh, religions that believe in revelation, that God has actually revealed himself, and you have Christianity, the one that we know as the God of the Bible who actually spoke, then let's get into, so now we're though, you're like this mainline denomination. How, what's, how's a denomination different than a religion? Uh, well, in many cases, uh, you know, it's, it's how you want to slice it, but in many cases, the problem with many Christian denominations is they've lost their moorings and they're more into religion, doings and shoulds and oughts than they are into what the gospel is, which is God's revealed himself and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's why it always begins to get back 
to the central question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Now, it's just interesting to me, and I happen to know you well enough to know this is you, but that's really your message. Um, You keep wanting to talk about Jesus, and yet I'm stereotyping you as a denominational guy for this reason. A lot of people who turned away from the message that that you preach and certainly that your church preaches, a lot of those people just say, you know, that that whole denominational stuff, these people get caught up into all kinds of garbage. And it happened to be my father happened to be one of those people. And I have a lot of friends who say, oh, okay, so he's a Presbyterian, you know, big denomination. What's that mean? Aren't they the ones who ordain homosexuals or aren't they into and that begins to get into sexual issues and um, uh, gender identity issues. How how have you been able to navigate that when it just isn't really what you want to be talking about? The reason I got into this denomination, and I could have selected uh, any denomination or no denomination, non-denominational faith, was because um, I felt that this denomination historically had a pretty good understanding of what the scriptures reveal to us about who God is in Jesus Christ, and they had lost their way. Now, I wasn't going to come in and save the denomination, but I, I had a real sense of call to going to churches that really had uh, had either poor uh, leadership or no leadership at all. And instead of, you know, we knew a lot of people that went out and started new churches, um, and that's the, the, and you did that. And one of the reasons to do that is because you don't have to deal with a lot of crap. You know, you can start with a clean, clean slate. I was more attracted to going in and saying, um, hey, look, while many people think you're on a course to die, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do a J-curve. We can um, see growth. And, and, and that's what I've been blessed to see. And it really, I mean, I wouldn't attribute it to me as much as I would to uh, God's calling on my life. Um, you know, that's why I, I did what I did. So um, this denomination that I'm in uh, continues to tr- to sort of trend in a religious way, um, pandering more to social mores that, that come from uh, people outside of the, the scriptures and outside of the church. And so I guess in a sense, I'm still rebelling <laughs> against, um, uh, against uh, falsehood as I see it. I wonder, uh, Doug, how do you address those um, who really get so caught up into that that they um, they do miss the message? How do you, how do you say, you know, really you can come to church and not have to deal with those details and deal with what matters in your life? Yeah, well, I, it's not just saying it, but but trying to live that. To me, it's much more interesting to hear the questions people are asking rather than simply saying to them, listen to me and what I have to say to you. Because I know the intersection between a person's needs and uh, a person's perspective and their ability to understand is great. So that's my goal, to get into their uh, into their boat, get into their life a bit and say, you know, hear what they're, see what they're uh, talking about, read what they're reading and all this. And and demonstrate, seek to demonstrate to them that I really do care. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, as you know, we don't always care about everybody. I think it's impossible to care for everybody. But one of my prayers is always, you know, Lord, direct me to people that uh, you would have have a desire to to affect. 
And so the bigger part of affecting lives, I think, is being able to listen and earn the right to be heard. Uh, but I learn just as much as they do. Mm. You know, people really don't care anymore about the things they used to about this in terms of, do they, they really don't care about Baptist and Methodist or Calvary Chapel or this or that. When a person comes to your church, if they're willing to do that, and that's a big decision these days, you know, am I really going to go? Um, but it just doesn't, they're not asking really those denominational, denominational questions that, that gets in the way, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes there are people that are asking those denominational questions, but you're absolutely right. And to me, a win isn't getting them in the door and keeping them and somehow getting them to be members and and having them act all the ways we want to act. My view of a win is uh, being able to to have some exposure to them and seeing God work in their life, whether they come here and stay here for a long time or not. You know, Doug, beneath um, the button-down stereotype I have for you and the tufted chair behind you and the first person we've dealt with with a tie um, is a person in your life um, who's really important who got stuck in the addiction issue. And and we have a passion for that here at Church Hurts and We really do. Could Are you willing to share a little bit of that story? Sure. You know, we have two daughters, um, uh, they're separated by two and a half years. And our youngest daughter, our, our oldest daughter was um, kind of a, a, a personality and still is. And uh, she uh, uh, kind of cast a big shadow. Our, our second child, who was uh, probably more gifted than her in almost every dimension and still is, um, when she was uh, 15 years old, she began to exhibit uh, eating disorder uh, behavior. And she got way into... Um, um, eating disorder. Uh, she was uh, severely anorexic. She's been in uh, a number of different treatment programs. Um, most of the last almost 15 years of her life, uh, she has been in some kind of a program, either inpatient or outpatient. And she's, uh, you know, I mean, I'm her father, and I can say she's a wonderful uh, woman who has great gifts and skills and all that. I can tick them off, but uh, deep down, I think she she is fine. She has a control, a desire to control, and the thing she controls is her eating. And um, it's been it's very difficult because unlike a lot of addictions, um, we all need to eat. And uh, food is so much a part of our life and part of our social interactions and all. And so when food is at the center of what you're trying to control, it's uh, really been difficult uh, for her. And, some, and for the family as well, but particularly for her in all of her relationships. Uh, she's, would be a per, she's a person who, and I don't know that she's said this, but I, I think she's intimated it. You know, she, I have no friends, and yet she's lived in a number of cities, and I've gone to visit her in those cities, and it's amazing. You can't walk down the street without 20 people saying in the space of a block hi to her. And I'm, I often think, boy, she says she has no friends, and maybe what she means is I know a lot of people, but there's nobody I can really, you know, get one-on-one under the covers with, as it were. Um, and it's uh, it's difficult. But I can just see the church kind of looking at you, saying, you're the pastor of a church and you have a daughter whose life's out of control. Shouldn't she trust Jesus for this? Yeah, there may be people. It's been great because uh, I can't think of too many people that have 
said that. They might have thought it, but um, if they if they've said it to me, I, I would my response would be, "You're absolutely right. Uh, trust the Lord." But that doesn't mean all your issues go away. You know, yeah. um, you know. I, I think uh, our, one of our friends and mentors used to say, "You know, if a, a kook becomes a Christian, they become a kooky Christian." You know, and we, you know, all immediately all uh, issues that you deal with uh, don't dissolve. In fact, what Jesus normally does is uses them as a platform. You know, she's able to, to talk, and I, I've seen this in her life. She's able to talk with people that have similar issues at a level. And I, I'm not a part of privy of those conversations, but, you know, I'll look over and see this person in, in tears. And I know that Maggie's interfacing with them at a level I could never do. Right, right. Hey, I want to I want to bring Paul in here. You know, Paul um, is on the other side of that denominational thing. Uh, he's a traditional Catholic, and um, Paul, you have some questions. What are you hearing in this discussion? You know, we've for so long worried about what separates us, and I'm wondering if all the mainline churches shouldn't create some dialogue to work together to find out what not just unites, I'm not trying to bring everybody back under one happy banner here again, but just to to tackle this whole issue head on, because I think it, it cuts across every denomination. What John said, the Pew Research showed for the first time a year or two ago, less than half Americans identify with any religion, my own daughter included. And I think it's just a disaster in the making here. You know, we're, we're going to end up, it, it isn't about uh, whether you're a Presbyterian or Catholic, it's, it's anymore, it's like, who cares? And, and that's frightening to me. So are, think, is, is there any way to get past our, you know, I mean, uh, Protestantism, Catholicism been, you know, since the split way back when, what was it, 1500s, 1600s, 1400s, you know, the, we, so many 15, people are still 17. fighting. 70s, so many people are fighting these battles that uh, my daughter and, and her generation look at, like, who cares? I think you're absolutely right, Paul. I think and what, what does bring people together is a common mission. You know, we've been able to spawn a number of nonprofits to deal with people in variety of uh, need, whether it be for household furniture and household items or whether it be for food or whatever. And it's amazing to see the partnerships that develop between Protestants, Catholics, people that are outside of any of those faiths, maybe embracing something else. But as they, they come together and they work together and even pray together, they begin to have greater revelation of who Jesus really is and what, how he can um, uh, be at work in their lives. And I guess my question is, what is the future of organized religion? Uh, any of these denominations, you know, the Catholicism and all the different branches of Protestantism and, and all the even Islam, other sorts of things, all of that. I don't know if Islam suffers from the same uh, d decline in the U.S. as others have. I don't really know if that falls into it, but I guess it does. I mean, people just don't feel like they're identifying with any faith. It's not that they're finding something instead of, they're finding nothing. And I guess I'm just wondering, what does that portend for the future of all organized religion? Are we just not going to be organized into anything? I really, I, I really, uh, Doug, I'm not going to lay that big of a question on you. I, I'm going I'm to refine it a little bit and okay. say, tell you what, no, because that's really, how do we get all organized religions together? Oh, gee, thanks, Paul. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but you know what, to the person there, you know, the person listening is like, I'm, I'm going to one of those little dying churches and you know, it's, it's good. It's a good church, but we're, we're just, we're not going anywhere. And, 
you want you come out of Princeton with a goal you decide I'm I'm going to go find the churches that are struggling and help them the church you go to in Hebron Pennsylvania was a town that was on the decline the church was on, tell tell me about what was told to you and then and then tell us how can how can people do what you did because to my knowledge your church is the best attended Presbyterian church. And you know, Paul, you know Pittsburgh, and it's filled with Presbyterian churches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, right. And, and yours in this little town of Hebron that was declining, and a church that was declining is the best attended church. What do you do? What Give me, what's the secret? How do you quit going downhill when you have something so valuable to offer? What do you, what do you say to people to encourage uh, those smaller churches? Well, one of the things I I could say to them, I may have said it over the years, but I'm old, so I forget what I said. Um, uh, when I first came to the first church after I had left uh, EPA and went to Princeton, and I came to the church in a little town, and and I, you know, I was praying, Lord, take me to a place that's really dead and dying, but there's a nucleus of people that recognize that and want to start over. And I get to this meeting with this group of seven people, and the first thing out of the person's mouth was you know, we want to start at ground zero and build our Christian faith. I thought, whoa, is that great? And um, when I came here, I was told by the uh, the hierarchy, uh, not of the church, but the people outside the church, you need to be content with three things. This church is going to be poorer, uh, smaller, and more racially diverse. And they're only right on one thing, and that's the third one. Uh but the, I think it's got to be real. You've got to be r- real with folks and and in the real uh, gospel, the real Jesus, and then hearing people where they are, see where their pain points are, because that's really where Jesus would have you gravitate. Find where things are, where people are interfacing. You know, spiritual growth occurs on relational bridges. And so what often happens in churches, especially small, they feel like there's nobody coming. There's nobody there. We're just dying, but you know what? We're going to die with dignity. And by the way, we don't want anybody to come. We might see the need to not have any people. We don't want anybody here. It's our own little pity party. And to begin <laughs> yeah. to get them out of that. I mean, the way that happened here was I spent more time with new people and people on the outside. And a lot of the people that were maybe stagnant inside began to see that and said, well, and they began to make relationships with these people and growth occurred. I think that's, uh, you know, that's a real quick answer, but I think that's, it's at least been uh, practically applied and worked. Well, I think you hit the key word real. That's the thing people have got. If they think it's fake, phony, forced on them, uh, you know, just fed a party line, uh, young generation doesn't buy that anymore. Not the way my generation did or whatever. We just, you know, listened and followed to, not me per se, but older generations just listened and followed much more than youth does. Well, Doug, I, I'm thankful for you, for your wisdom, for your um, lifelong ministry. And um, let me just say a word before we go. Um, and again, Doug, I hope you're going to come back because you know so much about so many things that um, you've helped me through over the years. Um, and But it seems to me that sometimes um, we are just too quickly dismissive of things which were really important to people in the past before we take time to understand why they were important. Um, we think of our church organizations and our minds go to stories of hypocrisy and sex abuse, 
power tripping, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's another side of church, too. Church leadership and church organizations are usually made up of people with, uh, who bring their time and their money and their prayers and their gifts to help others that are a lot more needy than themselves in many ways. Not to confuse things here, but I'd like to bring a few words of Jesus into our discussion. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the hard truth. Those words are accurate. When Christians don't love each other, the watching world is pretty sure they really aren't followers of Jesus. And then, too, Jesus once said to, to Peter, he said, you know, um, you know, who do you say that I am? Everybody's saying all these other things. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, wow, uh, and that he went on to say, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, Doug, we remember that the church was God's idea. It really was. Now, sometimes it blows it and sometimes it's downright embarrassing and sometimes you want to walk away. But you know what? That reminds me of something else. Or should I say someone else? You. You, the listener, you sometimes blow it. You sometimes are embarrassing. And sometimes people want to walk, walk away from you. And aren't you glad that all of us don't? This is John Bash for Church Hurts and It's Worth a Thought. Enjoy God today, won't you? And that brings us to the close of another edition of Church Hurts and leaving us, well, as always, with a lot to think about. If you want to think more or hear more from Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to helping and caring for pastors and Christian leaders who might find themselves at risk of giving up, leaving the ministry prematurely. You can find more about John's work at standingstoneministry.org. And next week, as if this wasn't controversial enough, next week we're going to look at singleness and marriage within the church with a special guest who knows all about it. Imagine that. See you then. Church hurts. And...